So, you know, how do we make it so that more people can engage with self-driving cars without working for Google or Waymo or whatever? And the answer is you sort of, you take the essence and you reduce it to a unit that anybody can have access to exactly as we did with drones. You know, I didn't have a Predator, so I made one out of Lego and, and foam. And I didn't have a self-driving car, so I made one out of, out of you know, toy parts and, and a Raspberry Pi. And so what you're seeing is this incredible diversity of people who are engaged. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. I knew Chris originally, or knew of Chris, as the chief editor of Wired and the author of The Long Tail. But it turns out that in the last decade, he's gotten super into drones and started a company around DIY drones, and now works on 3D robotics and DIY robot racing. So it's a super interesting conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. Chris, it's such an honor to meet you, and you have such an interesting kind of arc to your career. Before we get into the stuff you're doing now, could you kind of tell us about the highlights of, of what you've done before the, the robot stuff? Sure. It looks really chaotic and random, but like every step made sense at the time. And possibly if I do my job here, I can make it make sense in retrospect. So, you know, I was a um, terrible student, essentially failed out of high school then failed out of college and then played in punk rock bands for most of my 20s as a, working as a bicycle messenger. Wait, is that and, right? Wait, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the best story is that I was in uh, REM. No, wait, really? Well, there's wow. a little bit of a footnote to that, okay. um, which is not the REM. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was in a, a band called REM in Washington, D.C. We were, we were really good. <laughs> we were you know, about to release our first album, and our manager said, you know, it's the weirdest damn thing. There's this other band called REM, but you know they're releasing their album on the same day. But don't worry, they're from Athens, Georgia. How good could they be? And so we thought it would be really funny that you know we, the sort of the famous, you know, big city REM, would invite the little country REM up to Washington D.C. for a battle of the REMs, and the winner <laughs> would get to rename the loser, which they agreed to. And they came up, and we we played a, a joint record launch party. Um, Wait, so this is like early '80s, right? Yeah, I, I guess it was about yes, about '83 ish. '83, maybe eighty, maybe '85 ish, something like that. And so we had the famous like 9.30 club in Washington, D.C. Um, so we played and we flipped a coin to see who goes first. We went first and, you know, we played a good set. We got decent applause. We went to the bar to celebrate our inevitable victory. Then <laughs> then they came on second and their first song was uh, Radio Free Europe, which was their first single. Yeah. And our jaws were on the floor and we're like, you know, our beer's unfinished and we realized we were completely <laughs> sunk. And, you know, they were great, as you might imagine. One, as you might imagine, and uh, Mike Mills, the bass player, stayed stayed around just long enough to rename us Egoslavia because, <laughs> because we were so arrogant to think that we would win. And we released our album under that name <laughs> and the rest is history. Wow, anyway, that's amazing. Yeah, so it's 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 it, that was my little sort of you know brush of fame. <laughs> but yeah, so so complete fuck up, student. Oh, sorry, we may have to beat that. But you know, eventually in my late twenties, I was like, you know, this I don't think this punk rock thing is really working out for me. I should probably you know use my brain again. And uh, as a teenager, I'd been you know sort of thrilled by physics, and you know I got the Feynman lectures 
on my 16th birthday, which was like, I read those instead of going to, to school. And so I went back to college and I got a, I decided at this point I had so much to prove that I was going to do the hardest thing possible, which was um, physics. And so uh -huh. I got a degree um, in computational physics, which was a, a new thing at the time. And uh, the job of all of us physicists in those days was basically to understand the nature of matter as we go further and closer and closer to the Big Bang. So higher and higher energies. And that means bigger and bigger and more expensive particle accelerators. And we were all sort of queued up to work on something called the superconducting supercollider, which was mm -hmm. going to be in Texas. And um, the problem is that the cost of the collider kind of scales with the energy it produces and, you know, went from 8 billion to 16 billion to, you know, to 19 billion. And then Congress canceled it. And that was it. There were just, you know, there were no more, there were no more interesting experimental facilities in the United States. And it was all going to be kind of queuing up for CERN, the LHC in CERN in Switzerland. You know, and you, I realized I could just, you could see my, you know, I could see my career. I was going to be like an assistant professor at Iowa State, you know, waiting for my experiment to run at CERN. And, you know, 20 years later, it would run and it would probably fail. And I would be author 300 on a paper about an experimental failure. And I was like, that sucks. And I wasn't even very good at it. So it was just, it just it was time to move on. And, and so I went to, to the adjacent space, which was the science journals, Nature and Science, to write about science rather than be, be a scientist. And then, you know, went from there to The Economist to, to lead their tech coverage. One of the things that we learned from that generation of physicists who just, you know, basically their, their careers vaporized with the uh, SSC was that although physics was not going to be our future, we had accidentally created the internet, you know, in the, in, in, as physicists. You know, so the internet, as you know, was created largely to link research facilities. The web was created at CERN, a, a physics um, lab. And we, as physicists, had the only big data out there. We were the only people doing big data because we had all this data coming from the particle accelerator. So we had these skills, big data and internet. And so when this generation, you know, vaporized to the winds, most of them went to Wall Street to become quants, which was the next source of big data. And then some of the ones who didn't do that went to sort of, you know, create the emerging internet industry, which is kind of what I did as, as, as a writer and, you know, sort of kind of move media onto the internet. Before you go yeah. further, I just, you know, like getting a PhD in quantum physics is, is no joke. Like, I think, you know, I, I've, I have a lot of friends who feel kind of stuck in academia and, and have trouble getting out, even though the careers available to physicists, for example, are, are quite good. I think most people feel a little bit like failures because like inside of it, you're so like funneled through this escalator to success. I mean, you speak so rationally about it, but actually I, I feel like most people aren't able to, to make that leap. Do you think it was like your perspective of having, you know, not jumped from undergrad to grad school or or something else? Yeah. I mean, so, so to be clear, I don't have a PhD. I dropped out of the, the PhD program, not even an ABD. I didn't even get that far. But, you know, if you love physics, it's it's kind of heartbreaking to see what's happening um, now. So you're inspired by the greats. But, you know, like all scientific disciplines, you need you need theory and experiments to be, you know, to be, you know, matched by a sort of a limited amount of time. So a theory comes out and you want the experiment to be able to kind of, you know, falsify or not within, say, five years. If that gap grows, then theory becomes un unmoored in reality and it becomes almost like poetry and you know and now it's like the coolest theories and the ones that sort of are best told are the ones that spark the imagination and it's almost like metaphysics no it's no longer physics it's it's almost philosophy and that's a really weird place for a scientific discipline to be 
And I think that the people who stick with it and, you know, all they can really do, they can either line up for a, you know, an experimental facility and, you know, see you in a, a generation, or they can go into theory and it's seductive in that it's math, but it's not real. And I, I think you can really get lost there. It's almost, it's almost religious. There is a, a slight, a slight ray of hope though, in cosmology and that rather than having physics facilities, you know, on a terrestrial physics facilities that we use the stars mm-hmm. as, you know, to create energies and to observe them. And so we're getting much, much better at using, you know, astrophysics as an experiment, but it can't do everything. So, I mean, I'm not sure I answered your question, but, but, you know, basically if you fall in love with physics, what you, what you get is a really good grounding in statistics and math, but it's not a great career. And it's probably best to, you know, to use that grounding. And then, and there's plenty of physicists out there doing, doing good work in machine learning elsewhere. And so that's why my degree was actually computational physics, mm-hmm. which in, in, in retrospect was more about compute than it was physics. I see. Interesting. And so then, but then you sort of left that whole thing to, to be a journalist. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, again, it, it was sort of stepwise. My parents were journalists. So it was kind of like, I, you know, the one thing I was sure I was not going to do was journalism. <laughs> but, you know, I, I went, you know, I, writing about it for, but you know, again, your science and nature are, are, are scientific journals. So it felt, you know, wasn't like, you know, grubby newspapers. And then The Economist, again, a lot, you know, repu- you know everybody was a PhD of one sort or another. Most people were. And so it, was, it really felt like you were part of like extended academia. Mm-hmm. Then moving to Wired and to take over Wired in 90, 90 um, sorry, uh, 2001, that was the first leap into traditional media owned by Condé Nast, which owns like Vanity Fair and New Yorker and things like that. So it would be traditional media, but they bought Wired. They hadn't created it. And Wired was created largely as a, you know, as a, as an evangelical Bible of the emerging internet. And one of the reasons I left science was because, you know, in 93, when, when Wired was launched and the, and the internet was just forming, I wasn't sure what it was. I mean, again, we thought it was just like a way to telnet into the cray at Los Alamos. We didn't, we didn't, and, and then this magazine comes out with these day glow colors saying, no, this is a cultural revolution. This is going to change the world. This is going to change everything. And it just blew my mind. I suddenly realized that this thing I was kind of good at actually had these big implications and that, that had dictated the, the direction of my career. And so when the opportunity came to, to, to lead it, I was like, yeah, this is the religion I believe in. Well, and, that's funny because yeah. 2001 is a really interesting year, right? Was this pre kind of a bubble collapse or post? No, post, collapse? post. It was, it was like the best and the worst time. So the, the bubble collapsed in March of 2000. 2000. Yeah. And, right, right. and, you know, and so at that point, you know, the most of the world was saying, this is, you know, this is, this is a subprime mortgage, you know, this is, this is a, this is a, you know, a hoax, perhaps right. even worse. If you, but you had to believe that the internet was not the stock market, you know, that there was something real at the core of the stock market and that the, the bubble was a, was a finance, you know, artifact, but the underlying trends were real. And it was very un, um, unpopular and somewhat minority view at the time that the internet was real. And, but if you were to bet at that time, as I did, that the internet was real and the stock market thing was the stock market thing, then you could, you're buying at the bottom, essentially. So, you know, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have been offered the opportunity to take over Wired if it, if, you know, if, if everybody knew it was the hot place to be and I wouldn't have been able to hire the people I did. And, and as I say, the best time to, you know, to take over when you're like, you know, not particularly 
experience at this kind of stuff is, is at the bottom because you can hire people. Your lack of success is cloaked by the market's lack of success. It's impossible to succeed in that environment. So no one can tell whether your failures are yours or the ex or exogenous ones. And then thirdly, once things start to pick up again, your year on year growth looks amazing. <laughs> so, so it worked out really well, but it was a very counter counter cyclical bet at the time. And, you know, if you look back at, at, you know, underlying internet adoption trends, you almost can't see the bubble bursting. It was really isolated to the, the stock market and what, and all that capital created a huge amount of infrastructure, which we still enjoy today. Hmm. Interesting. So what about the long tail? Like, how did that kind of come about? And yeah, so thank you. So, so w when you take a sci you know, physicist basically by heart and you stick them in media, you know, I'm I'm not trained as a writer or as a as an editor. Or didn't have any particular interest in media. I was really interested in it was the story. But I'm a nerd, so you know, what am I going to do? Is I'm going to try to do research about this story, and so you know not trained as a, as, a, as a journalist, I was trained as a data analyst. And so I was like, well, something important is going on, you know, in the in the server farms of, you know, Amazon and Netflix, we can probably see it as a lens on on human behavior, in a way that we never had before, we're basically, we're basically instrumenting, you know, society in a way we never had before. And this is obvious today, but it wasn't it wasn't at the time. And I said, you know, I bet I bet if we if I could get that data to see how consumer preference actually looked at scale, I bet it, I bet it would be interesting. I bet we'd learn things that we weren't seeing, you know, with the, you know, I don't know, Department of Commerce reports or, you know, the Walmart quarterly earnings. Mm -hmm. And so I asked. And so I just started, I, I asked the Yahoo's and the you know, the Netflix's and the Amazon's, um, you know, for their data. And and weirdly, they, you know, had to sign a couple of NDAs and anonymize some stuff, but they they gave it to me. And I just got these massive data sets. And I just, I did really dumb stuff. I just stuck it into a spreadsheet. And I, you, you have basically sales of the set of products. Take music, for example. You get like a million tracks, and then you rank them in terms of popularity. And I just stuck them in a spreadsheet, and um, nothing showed up. It's like there's, the graph was, was empty. And I was like, wait, what happened here? And I said, well, whew, let me just cut off the first 100 and just graph from like 101 down to a million. And then I could see the line and I realized what happened is that the, that the inequity of the marketplace, the incredible scale differences between the number one track and the number one million track it basically compressed my scales. So the scales are set by the number one. The Y is set by the number one, and the X is set by the number million. And so the line was basically just right <laughs> all along the axes. And until right. you cut off the head, you couldn't see the tail. And it was simply that dumb thing that I did, you know, one night with a spreadsheet that kind of created this, that just shifted my gaze to the right. And I realized there was a lot there that we weren't paying attention to because it was, because it was, you know, high 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 number but low magnitude and and that created the notion of the long tail and then you know got other data sets and they all confirmed that if you kind of you know if you have in basically infinite inventory and mechanisms for people to explore that inventory that the that consumer preference shifts down the tail now not entirely we still have network effects and hits and things like that but basically there was a lot of suppressed preference for niche stuff that was suppressed by the you know scarcity function of shelf space that was opened up by the non-scarcity by the abundance of of, of online you know databases and you know e-commerce, et cetera. What's interesting is the, the caveat to that story is that I got a bunch of data sets and then about a year later, 
AOL was also sharing some data and shared with some academics and, and somebody figured out that you could reverse, you could de-anonymize. Oh, the um, search data. The search data. They could oh, de-anonymize I remember that. the search well, data. Yeah. yeah. Gotta, and it was, yeah. it was a, it was a shit show. And yeah. as a result of that, all the companies stopped sharing data. So it was right. basically a 12 month period where you could do the work I did and like internally companies do it all the time, but externally you can't get the data anymore. Mm. But you also kind of, I feel like you named this really important phenomenon, right? Like I think it's still, you know, called this today. Like it seems like there's a real skill and like, like you just nailed something that's that's so important. So I have to uh, confess that you know that that yes, I mean I, I I did kind of come up with that name. It turns out that actually that phrase has been used before. People talk about fat tails, etc. Fat tails is it? I heard it. Yeah, yeah it. it probably has been used, but I think I called it. I think I was at least invented in my own head, but I didn't think it was a big deal. And then I, you know, it's like slide seven in my presentation. And then I went to see Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, and uh, kind of walked, you know, I kind of walked through my presentation, walked through my analysis with him because they'd helped. And he got to slide six and he says, there's your headline right there. And so Reed Hastings was the one who actually identified the long tail as being the sort of, you know, the, the, the mot juste, if you will, wow, that, that captured it. Wow. And I guess it's funny. I feel like that's maybe the thing you're best um, known for. Are you, are you kind of sick of talking about it? Or no, like, you... no. You know what? I, I'm I'm not doing any active research in it. But uh, but no. I mean, I. What's interesting is that any sufficiently novel idea will separate the audience into two halves. There's those who say no way, and those who say duh, and it almost goes generationally. <laughs> you know, so anybody who grew up on the internet was like duh. <laughs> You know, of course, lots of products, lots of choice, lots of, you know, niches are a thing. And anybody who kind of grew up before that, and I don't mean to be ageist, but it's, you know, kind of cultural age, if not, if not chronological. You know, there's a lot of people who grew up uh, culturally in the era of blockbusters and top 40 radio and, you know, three, you know, three TV channels, etc., who basically, you know, argued that the blockbuster was forever and that that and that the long tail was a uh, mirage that, you know, probably wrongly gave hope to niche artists that they could somehow, you know, work. And, and, and of course, you know, they're right, you know, and, and it was clear. I never said it was the end of the blockbuster. I said it was the end of the monopoly of the blockbuster. And I also, you know, it was clear that the economic rewards would be felt largely by the aggregators rather than the creators. And, you know, the cultural rewards are felt by all of us, of course. And the creators obviously, you know, take music or, or writing or whatever. It's, there's certainly some, some psychic rewards of being listened to or read. But you, know, you can't, you know, the fact that the internet exists doesn't mean that a, you know, a, a, a struggling musician is going to be any less struggling. So, so I think there was, there was, there's a lot of people who just kind of read it as only kind of blockbusters are dead, therefore the long tail is wrong. And they still say that. And then there's a lot of other people who feel that it's completely self-evident. One of the kind of tragedies is that I wrote the book before YouTube existed. Mm. And YouTube, of course, is the canonical long tail, you know, marketplace of, of all kind of cultures and niches, et cetera. And, and so on one hand, it's kind of weird. I mean, I still have academics who like, you know, sort of show me people really don't understand the math, the long tail. And they keep saying, they keep saying percentages, you know, it's like, well, 1%, you know, the top 1% of X still has 90% of the, and they don't realize that, you know, it's 1% of like 100 million. And so it's from, you know, an absolute numbers is a lot, but still, and I, and I still get this all the time from academics who like, you know, long tails of hoax because, you know, top 1%, et cetera. Meanwhile, anybody who like, I, I, I should be able to say YouTube, <laughs> you know, discuss, but for some reason, some people just don't 
want to want 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 to, to see it that way. So, so I, I do end up still trying to kind of find evidence um, of it. I mean, actually, it was it was a lot less controversial than my next book, Free, which was the uh, the economics of free stuff. And you know, obviously, economics is largely focused on monetary economics, and yet there's obviously a, a non-monetary marketplace out there as well. I mean, we're doing it right now. You don't charge your listeners for this, and I don't charge you for this. And you know, we're doing some some exchange, some non-monetary exchange that has value, but economists don't know how to measure it. Mm-hmm. So that that one was actually much more controversial. Interesting. What was the controversy, or like, did, did you feel like you got a lot of negative feedback? Um, yeah. I mean, especially from media. You know, um, uh, I have a kind of a love hate relationship with the media, which is increasingly becoming a hate hate <laughs> relationship. <laughs> but the newspaper business was imploding, and they largely believed that the canonical error that the newspaper business made was was the putting their content free on the internet and had they only you know set up payroll paywalls at the beginning mm-hmm. that they somehow media would be preserved and people in media take themselves pretty seriously they feel like they're the fourth estate and protectors of democracy and the only people who can keep us from the mob etc and so they believed that free content on the internet was destroying this foundation of democracy and that i was helping i was, I was, I was not helping mm-hmm. if you will <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what happened next? So then you got into drone. Yeah, drone. so running a magazine by by day, but I still nerd by night. And uh, you know, so my my first you know, nerd thing was the long tail and the statistical analysis, and you know, writing books that were largely economic books because you know I'm not trained in economics. My time at the Economist sort of osmotically, you know, gave me some exposure, but still, you know. You know, basically, I'm a programmer by heart. And um, as my kids got older, I wanted, I've got five kids, and they were, you know, I tried, my wife's a scientist as well, and we tried to get them interested in science and technology. And so as they got older, I was thinking of, you know, cool things to do with them. I actually started a, a site called Geek Dad, um, which Are is all about Geek Dad. Wait, yeah, I, start, I, I, know I start, Geek Dad. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, <laughs> although I think Geek Mom is actually doing even better right now. Nice. Um, also a spin off of this. But so I started, I started Geek Dad, and, you know, it was largely the, the notion was, you know, STEM projects that were sort of fun for the kid and fun for the adult, because there was a lot of things that were fun for the adult, not fun for the kid, or fun for the kid, not fun for the adult, but the ones that kind of got it exactly right. And so in the course of doing that, I was like, robots, we should probably do something (laughs) with robots. And the kids are like, you know, so we got a um, so Lego, I was on their advisory board and Lego sent me um, a, you know, the first Lego Mindstorms. Whoa, um, you man! Wow, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. cool. Yeah. So, so they sent me the first Lego Mindstorms, like beta <laughs> testing, and so I, you know, I showed it to the kids, and the kids are like, "Yeah, we'll do it." And so you you, you follow the instruction to put together, and you know, it takes all morning, and then you you have a little sort of wheeled robot that'll kind of move towards a wall and then back away. Mm-hmm. And the kids are like, "You fucking kidding me?" <laughs> they, no, sorry, I, they they we'll, we'll definitely believe that they did not they do not use that kind of language. But internally, whatever the yeah, sort yeah, of you I know nine year old equivalent of, of of that is, and uh, and I realized that you know that Hollywood has ruined robotics for kids because you've got Transformers, you know, and this incredible stuff. And meanwhile, real robots just don't at least most of them don't really do anything. You know, yeah. we're talking about Roomba, et cetera. So, so the sort of the gap between the sort of Hollywood version of robots and the prosaic reality was such that it was really hard to get them excited. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, what would be cooler than a rolling robot? I thought a flying robot. Mm. And so I'm like, well, I don't actually know what a flying robot is. I'm just, <laughs> you know, I just, Astro Boy or something. I'm not sure. So I like literally Googled flying robot and uh, the first result was drone. I was like, huh. I had thought about, I guess a drone is a flying robot. 
wait, what's a drone? So Google drone and a drone is like a wait. What year is this? This is like a hard this to is imagine. Ninety six, ninety seven. No, sorry, sorry. Two thousand two thousand six, two thousand seven. Okay, wow. So drones are not in, no. in the zeitgeist yet. No, well, wow. drones were in the zeitgeist as a military thing. I see. Right. But there were right, there were right, no right. consumer drones. You couldn't buy one. <laughs> I know, I know. It seems so crazy now, but at the time, it was like you know, drones were like a predator that shot you know, hellfire missiles, etc. It was really a purely military thing. Right. And so Google is like, "What's a drone?" And um, drones like basically a plane with a brain. It had mm-hmm. an autopilot, and I'm like, "Okay, wait, what's an autopilot?" And um, you Google the autopilot, and it's like basically it sensors and compute, and you know, it kind of figures out which way is down, which way is up, you know, GPS, etc. And it's like. Those sensors and that compute, that's kind of what we have here in the Lego Mindstorms box, which came with, you know, accelerometer and magnetometer and gyro, et cetera. And I was like, let's just do it. And so around the dining room table, we built an autopilot out of Lego, stuck it in a radio controlled airplane, and it kind of almost worked. And the kids thought that was mildly amusing for about, you know, a minute. And I was (laughs) blown away. I was like, what just happened? Did we really just build a drone? with children on the dining room table out of Lego and it worked. Wait, can I ask you a very, like just having like messed around with drones quite a bit. I feel like you're skipping over the part where the thing keeps crashing and breaking. And then you spend like an hour putting it back together and then it like crashes and breaks oh, again. Like it's oh, maddening, right? Like, <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I just told you the bit that, that got me excited, you know, that put the idea in my brain the next five years were just horrible, <laughs> you know, but I couldn't let it. So basically what had happened in 2007 was a bunch of things that in retrospect seem obvious, but when 2007, it was the beginning of the maker movement. So it was 3d printing. It was Arduino mm-hmm. came out, but what it really was, was the launch of the iPhone 2007. So what's in an iPhone? A bunch of things, but a lot, but including our MEMS sensors, you know, these, these sensors that were chips and previous sensors were mechanical. You know, a gyro was, a, was, was literally a mechanical gyroscope and it was just unaffordable, unattainable. unattainable. And so I, I call this the peace dividend of the smartphone wars. But basically those, the, the components of an iPhone had now been so, che- you know, so cheap and available that you could then put them together in different ways and, and explore adjacent space. So like a Fitbit, well, the Wii controller, for example, was an accelerometer, a MAMS accelerometer. The Fitbit guys got a Wii controller. And just like I got Lego Mindstorms said, huh, what else could I do? They got a Wii controller, opened it up, saw the accelerometer and thought, what else can we do? And they came up with Fitbit. And so there's a bunch of people who, you know, were sort of looking at the components that came out of smartphones and thinking, how do I, you know, re recombine them? to create something new and transform an industry. And so that's what we did. We basically, rather than drones, that which had been aerospace grade stuff. So you basically you take an airplane, subtract the pilot. Mm-hmm. We're like, take a smartphone and add wings. Mm. And that bottoms up approach was completely radical and transformative and, and, and was, you know, initially was horrible. I mean, nothing worked. They crashed all the time, but because they were small and foam and cheap, nobody got hurt. Right. And because they were small and foam and cheap, we could actually build a community and we got, tens of thousands of people contributing and beta testing for all the right reasons. And we, we innovated, we collectively as a community innovated super fast so that we went from, you know, Lego to foam, to plastic, to 
basically dominating the drone world, including becoming the biggest drone producer in America and in North America five years after that Amazing. with no with no funding. We, that all just happened and it just kind of exploded out of nowhere. It's kind of like the way the internet kind of took over the telecom sector or, you know, PCs took over compute. This is, you know, a, a bunch of um, amateurs with open source software and, you know, hacked together stuff basically took over the future of aerospace. It was classic Gandhi stuff. First they ignored, then they laughed, then they fought, then they lost. And, you know, today it's pretty evident that the future of aerospace looks unmanned, it looks electric, it looks more like Silicon Valley than it does like Boeing or, Air, or Airbus, you know, mm -hmm. just like SpaceX did to, you know, to the launch alliance, you know, kind of, you know, the tech, the Silicon Valley drone model is, seems to be the future of, of aviation everywhere. That's so cool. And then, wait, but, but, and then how did you get into racing autonomous robots so. right right so so okay i started with you know with you know the the hobby to you know industrialize my hobby the drone community turns into a company the company you know get, gets big um, and now i'm running a company which is all well and good but again still nerd you know still still wanting to get my hands dirty drones at this point you know this is now and you know this is now you know 10 years on so this is like what, what year are we in 20 years so this is like 2017 2000 or so so at this point drones are kind of a solved problem it was really hard for a while, you know, the common filters and the, and, you know, building robust, reliable systems and, you know, connecting to the internet and the data payloads and the computer vision, all that kind of stuff it was really hard for a while, but now it's kind of solved. And I'm always looking for some unsolved problem, something that's challenging. And you would think that drones as a 3D problem would be harder than cars, which are a 2D problem, but they're not. And the reason being is that you can get away with all sorts of slop up there in the air. The air is largely empty. You have GPS. And so, you know, we, we didn't really care whether we were a meter off or we were just basically we had GPS. We position pose. We're kind of given to us. Position pose is given to us by the autopilot. It's hard to get there. You know, a lot of work to figure out where down is in an inertial frame. But and then position is given to us by GPS just for free. Mm -hmm. So you can't assume that you have GPS with a car. You often don't. You also so you need to establish position some other way. And also you need a kind of a level of precision that's like, you know, centimeter or, or less because there's lots of clutter, you know, on, on the street. And so it's basically became a computer vision problem. So if drones were an, an, an inertial problem, basically. Cars are a computer vision, deep learning problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, computer vision, deep learning was just less advanced than classic control theory. So it was an opportunity to kind of go deep on computer vision and, and, and deep learning and, you know, kind of get my brain going again. And um, once again, you know, DIY drones led to an industry. So we're like, what should we call it? DIY robocars. <laughs> You know, because I don't know, we haven't figured out a name for autonomous cars yet. I went with RoboCars. And let's do it again. Um, this time, I'm not going to screw up my hobby by turning into a company. I'm just going to leave it a hobby. But let's, let's you know, let's get this flywheel going again. Mm -hmm. And uh, once again, we had the enabling technologies, which were finally ready. We had good compute in forms like, you know, we start with Raspberry Pi 3s and 4s and then Jets and Nanos. The, the job is to keep it affordable, you know, democratize the technology. So we said we put a limit totally. of $400. Nothing could cost more than $400. This is kind of what it looks like. Oh, no way. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a, this is a variant of it, but this is just a, it's basically an RC car chassis with a, you know, this one happens to be a, a Raspberry Pi 4 on the top oh, and, nice. then a, and a camera. This one also happens to have an Intel RealSense T265, which is, which I'm playing with right now. But basically that's all you need. You need a camera, you need a Raspberry Pi, you need an RC car. Ooh, can I show you? I got I got one that I well this is not yours, but I made one that's kind of similar. Yeah, it's a Raspberry Pi three here. Yeah, with a camera, similar camera. I guess the chassis is a lot 
crappier than your chassis there. Well, you know, this one, this one's actually not that good. I probably fiddled with it a lot. I added an encoder, uh, a wheel encoder. So I'm getting the, uh, the T65, sorry to nerd out a little bit. The Intel yeah, yeah. RealSense T265 is a really interesting sensor. It gives you basically position. It's a visual slam you know, sensor, so it gives you position, but it's a lot better when it has an encoder, when it's matched with an encoder, it actually knows where uh -huh. it is. So it's doing it all visually with two, you know, with an IMU and 10, you know, stereo vision, et cetera. And it's trying to like, it, it records what it sees and then, and then, you know, records that as, as you follow a path and then, and then tries to replicate it again, all visually, but it can tend to drift over time. So, we, Wait, so can we I see that encoder. sensor again? The, the... Yeah, it's, it's this one right there. So that's like a two, two cameras. It's two cameras and an IMU. What's an IMU? An inertial me measurement unit. It's oh, um, you know see. accelerometer. It's a combination of accelerometers, gyros, and a magnetometer that create creates a. It gives you a a position. Gotcha. So your phone has one in it. So this one's this one's using a, a framework called a Donkey, and you know what? So DR Robocars is the community, but the actual project that is this mostly used is called the Donkey Car. Okay. It's sort of I would call it an MVP of of self driving cars. It's which is it's a it's end to end deep learning. And it's, it works in the real world. It works in simulation. And, uh, you know, the basic model is behavioral cloning. So what you do is you, you drive, you, you know, with a, with a PlayStation controller, you uh, drive it around a track uh -huh. and it um, records the video, well, the mm -hmm. still, you know, samples the, the, the video with stills as it goes around and then matches those with the inputs from your, your controller. And so you now have a pair. You have basically, you know, here, here's what this, the camera saw and here's what the driver did. And you send them out to the cloud and you, and you run TensorFlow or, or whatever, fast AI, whatever you're using. And you end up with, you come back with a, a model, an inference, mm -hmm. inference layer. And then, and, then you, and then the model runs locally. So we train in the cloud or on your PC but then you, you create a model, then the model runs locally, and then then you switch into auto mode, and then it drives by itself by simply sort of doing what you did more or less in in the training session. So you just drive around three or four laps, maybe go go clockwise, counterclockwise, a little domain randomization, and it should learn how to drive. Now that's 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 one technique in the physical world. That's the easiest way to train it. In our virtual environment, in our simulator, you can use different methods. So there we use things like reinforcement learning. And we give it, you know, reward functions and, you know, and, and, and all that, all that sort of thing. And, and uh, where, you know, during COVID, we've really pushed it towards simulation and uh, the, the exact same thing works. Uh, the exact same code works. Uh, it doesn't have to be in, on a physical car, work on your laptop and you're running in a unity based um, simulator. And so it's been a really good time for us to push hard on our, our simulation, you know, side of the equation. And one of the questions we'll have as COVID ends and we kind of return to physical, you know, races is how well do our models translate to the real world? Our, you know, our sim to real, our yeah, sim to real always gap. Always a challenge. Yeah, exactly. And so we're working pretty closely with Unity right now to try to figure out how to um, improve the probability that our, our simulated created models will translate well. And so we we think a lot about domain randomization. And one thing is it's it's hard to re remember, but you know, when you're when this car that camera is like twelve inches off the ground. Try putting your head 12 inches off the ground and try to see whether you can detect anything. And it's just, I mean, everything's so distorted and, and, and reflections and shadows, and it's really hard to see the world from there. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to, you know, simulators are too perfect. You know, it's perfect information. We can create any level of resolution. They don't have motion blurs. And so we're actually trying to kind of, you know, to make the simulator worse. Mm -hmm. and, and like one of the problems we have here is that you'll train on the track 
and on your own, it works great. And then during the race, the crowd comes and now you have spectators all around the track and now you have all these legs <laughs> and it completely throws off the model. And so we're actually modeling people and randomly putting people around the track to train the model to ignore that. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what is it really looking at? You know, which color channel, what contrast, you know, what do shadows do? And we're, we're trying to understand better how to um, robustify the, the model to do the sim to real well. Man, what a cool project. I have so many questions. <laughs> Does the Unity, is it like in the scope of Unity? I should probably know this, but I really just don't. So I think of Unity as a graphics company. Does their engine also model physics? Yeah, or? It, yeah, they've really they've really ramped up the robotics um, side. So you know, you think of them as a game engine, and, and of course they're they're good at that. You know, competing with Unreal, they're kind of open source, and Unreal is is, is less so, is not, I guess. But they're really pushing the robotics side, and yes, they use physics. So they use the Nvidia physics engine in in the background, cool. and so it's it's quite good. And they have a whole team right now focused on robotics. They're they're initially focused on on things like segmentation classification. So let's say, for example, you want to model a, a factory or a warehouse or the shelves of a 7-Eleven, et cetera. You know, how do you, how would you, how do you, you know, identify a, an object, this, a, a carton of milk, you know, mm-hmm. occluded, rotated, bad lighting? How do you make sure you can identify it well? And so they, they focus a lot on, on, on that, just sort of taking objects and then sticking them in virtual environments and just making it, you know, just creating a lot of noise and see and train the system to understand that. So that's, so that's, that's there. They're also used a lot in, in, in full-size self-driving cars because they create beautiful self, you know, uh, photorealistic environments. And that's, that's important as well. But what we're working on with them is video. I mean, yes, we screen grab the video, but the image moves. And so there's a correlation between the previous image and, the, and then the next image. So that includes things like motion blur because the, our cars go really fast. You know, they go probably, you know, 20, 30 miles an hour. But I mean, scale speed is like 150 miles an hour. And when right. your camera is a foot off the ground, it is a lot of motion blur and things like that. So we're starting to model that. We want to be, we procedurally generate tracks so that we can do domain randomization with tracks, make sure that you give the tracks certain parameters that at least don't break the physics. So one thing you could do is you could create a virtual model that can handle any track. But in the real world, you've got things like physics, like the traction budget of your of your wheels, et cetera. So we have to, you know, we have to be a model at least some physics the tracks are realistic and uh, and uh, you know basically what you want you you want to be able to you you want to be your training you want to be able to sort of say you know here is you know here's my model here's my code you know here's my 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 hyperparameters whatever stick it into the simulator ideally in headless mode so just running in the cloud and i want you to you know to run a thousand iterations and then i want i'm going to turn randomization on so I want you to do a thousand iterations of randomizing lighting, shadows, motion blur, objects that are surrounding, textures. I want you to go through, uh, randomize the courses as well. I want you to go go clockwise and counterclockwise. I want you to ch- to change which track you're in at any point. Then I want you to add other cars um, that are also random. And so when you think about that, when you think about this sort of the industrial scale of, of just scenarios you can create, it gets really exciting. And so that's where Unity is focused right now. Cool. What's your hope for this? Is it the joy of making something, or is there? Yeah, um... it's you know. I mean, as you know, one of the one of the rules of of the maker movement is you never ask why, because the answer is always because we can. My personal thing is that it's just really engaging. It gives me a reason to explore, you know, the cutting edge of 
machine learning and you know data science and things like that. So I need a reason. I, I'm like probably you. I can only learn by doing, and it gives me a reason to do it. As a community, our nominal reason is to democratize the technology. To basically, you know, I don't have a cell. I don't have a real self-driving car. You probably don't have a real self-driving car, and you know that ain't right. <laughs> you know, man. Well said. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, how do we make it so that more people can engage with self-driving cars without working for Google or Waymo or whatever? And the answer is you sort of you take the essence and you reduce it to a unit that anybody can have access to, exactly as we did with drones. You know, I didn't have a predator, so I made one out of Lego and, and foam. And I didn't have a self-driving car, so I made one out of out of you know toy parts and, and a Raspberry Pi. And so what you're seeing is this incredible diversity of people who are engaged. You know, last two two uh, two we have our virtual races every month. Two races ago, number one, the number one winner was Japanese, you know, I don't know. I don't know what he does, but let's imagine just Japanese, you know, engineer. Number two was French teenager. Number three was a 12-year-old Indian girl from Canada. And then down the line are, you know, University of San Diego professors, retired people. It's just incredible diversity of people who can participate because it's, I mean, if you do it virtually, it doesn't cost anything. It's just download some code and run it. And so we're really feeling like we're kind of, you know, we're, we're opening up the, you know, the, the excitement of the industry to people who otherwise wouldn't have access to it. And some of them are doing it for fun. Some of them are doing it to get smart on, you know, to give have like a, a, a tangible reason to learn machine learning. And some of them are doing it because they want it to be their next career. And so we, we find we have a lot of people who are kind of mid-career. You know, they got to they got it. They're an engineer or whatever. They got a job, but it's not exciting for them. And this is super exciting. And so it gives them the chance to sort of fall in love with tech again. And what are like the axes that you can change stuff, right? I think like one of the challenges of these simulations is it, it kind of constrains the hardware a bit, doesn't it? Or how do you think about that? Um, the axes that we don't really mess with are things like cost and, 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 and danger. So we like to keep them small. We like to keep them cheap. Everything. So that, that that's. I mean, there there's some exceptions, and I can get into that later. But but by and large, we we want, it should be something you can do indoors. It should be something that if it goes wrong, nobody gets hurt. So that's that's where we limit. Beyond that, the axes are, are really you know there, there really aren't um, any constraints. So for example, there are a lot of ways to do self-driving cars and a lot of sensors that are available. So one of the things that's gotten super interesting of, of late is that is that uh, 2D lidar has gotten Ooh, really cheap. I have one of those. Yeah. And uh, so you can get you can get 2D lidar now for about eight. Bucks and a range of about ten to twelve meters. So we can explore that now. Now the we right now we just use lidar for obstacle avoidance because our our courses don't have a lot of structure. They're basically just white lines on carpet or or, or, or on the pavement. I showed you the real sense the sensors. This particular one was was positioned, but they also have one that's depth sensing, which is useful for again obstacle avoidance. So um, what is step sensing? De sorry, depth, oh, sensing. depth sensing. Depth sensing. Forgive me. Another one is that we we can actually go out outdoors and use a drone autopilot on a car, and simply navigate by GPS alone. Now you know GPS is is not like not high enough resolution, but now RTK GPS, which uses a base station and a moving one, can is is quite affordable and can get you sort of centimeter level resolution. So this one here matches a matches a another GPS that's that's a base station that you have locally. It's and interesting, but you're not using any sonar anywhere, huh? Is it sonar is really not useful too for us? Yeah, so we well, so, so we used to use there used to be something called the um, Spark Fun Autonomous Vehicle Competition, you know, and which is 
no longer around. And that one was outdoors. And and people originally used sonar to do things like, you know, avoid the hay bales on the side, etc. Yeah, right, right. Very, very noisy. So the, there is not a sensor that exists that we haven't explored. So, <laughs> so y- yes, we, yes, we had sonar. But then we would create sonar arrays Whoa, of, of, you know, three of, of you know, 360 <laughs> degree sonar. Then nice. then we would then, you know, of course, the sonar is really old school. But the, you know, most more recent ones are these time of flight sensors, these little these little tiny time of time of flight sensors. And so this one actually was just to calibrate, just to compare sonar <laughs> with time of flight sensing. What's time um, of flight? Is that LIDAR? Uh, like it's, it's like LIDAR. It shines a light beam out and then measures the time it takes to come back. I see. So, so basically, sonar is is uh, quite a wide beam, and very noisy. It can, you know, the environment can obstruct. Time of flight is much better um, and cheaper and smaller, etc. So, what about so we've tried uh, it all. radar? Do you? We have radar as well. Radar is still relatively expensive. Also, radar is it tends to be it tends to be relatively broad beam, and that's not a problem. So it's you know if you're in a full size car and you want to detect a car in front of you, it's it's fine for that. But we have other ways to do it, cheaper ways to do a time of flight, for example. Because remember, remember our distances are like a couple meters, mm-hmm. not tens of meters. So we haven't we we don't have any need for radar because we can solve it with with time of flight. Then we have solid state lidar, which again is you know, is, is affordable and mechanically a little simpler. We do a lot of crashing. So mechanical, mechanical robustness is a good thing. We have, we, there, there's, there's of course, you know, the nice thing about, well, the, the spinning LIDAR I just showed you is basically a, a 2D planar one. The solid state wide LIDAR has kind of a wedge shape. And so you get a little bit more structure that way. But again, mm-hmm. the, the depth sensing cameras can give you much the same information. And they also give you sort of, you know, visual um, texture information, which is, which is useful on top of that. You know, there. I'm trying to think what else. What are the sensors we've we we play with? Oh, there's a really smart one. Um, so you can do a lot with cameras, and one of the winners uses. So most of these cameras, as you, as you saw, are looking out, looking forward, and a little bit down. And we're racing indoors. One of the so what people realized is that if you know where you are on the track, you have a huge advantage because you know where the curves are. You can go fast on the straightaways and slow on the curves, and you can basically you have you have you know sort of foresight into what's going to happen. So how do you localize on a indoor track? And we have cones um, at the corners to detect what people are, are, are disqualified. And so people realized the cones were sort of a, a foot signature of a, a fingerprint, if you will, for the track. And mm-hmm. so they would use LIDAR to identify the cones. Now you can do it optically as well because the cones are orange. And so they would basically localize that. And then a genius guy named Andy Sloan realized that there's another fingerprint of the track of the, of the course, which is that the, the lights on the ceiling had a distinctive pattern. And so his car actually has a fisheye lens. The camera looks up. It has a fisheye lens and it sees the, it can see around it a little bit, but it also sees the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And it basically just steers by looking at the lights um, (laughs) above it, which is, which is And you don't consider that cheating? You you just, any way to hack your... It it works great indoors, but now we make them go outdoors as well. And so it'll fail (laughs) outdoors. And so what you need is, and then, you know, as it happens, we work. We we do races in a place called Circuit Launch in Oakland, near the airport, and they just they just renovated it during COVID and they changed the lights. So, 
<laughs> but yeah, so every trick you can think of, you know, so it's called cone slam, by the way. Uh, slam, slam is simult- yeah, yeah. <laughs> simultaneous location mapping. So cone slam and light slam. And then anyway, that we I could go you know, down the rabbit hole. But I, I just wanted to say that we do racing, which is largely, you know, about going fast and, and beating other people. But there's there's also ways to explore self-driving cars at a tiny scale in a sort of a city environment. And this is one cute cute uh, version of it. Actually, I'm trying to remember actually what's what it's called. I'll, we'll put it in the show notes afterwards. But things like this use use cameras and um, and little Raspberry Pis. And uh, it's called Zoomy there. It just told me. Um, <laughs> nice. And you can build a kind of a Lego-sized city with stop signs and and street corners, et cetera. And so I actually, you can go to Ikea and get these like kids carpets of cities for like toy cars, et cetera. And you could actually run one of these in it <laughs> and it'll navigate the city. So these things are super, they use Jupyter notebooks and Python and, and they're, and they're really fun and easy and, and super cute. And you don't have to, you don't have to race to be able to participate. Well, those eyes are so evocative too. I, I love it. They are. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just said, find Zoomy on your Wi-Fi. And then if you go there, it runs a little web server and it's running a Jupyter notebook and you can do things like drive in the town. And so what, like, what is the challenge to like, what, what are the people that are winning these things like focused on? Is it, is it like actually knowing your position and orientation really accurately, or is it like sort of strategizing your path through the Course, you know, all, all of the all of the above. It's things like racing lines, which is you know you, you know find the basically racing lines are the shortest path around the around the track, and you know going fast and straightaways, and then you know breaking at the right time. The classic racing stuff. Localization helps a lot. It allows you to ca- create a strategy. Then you know then then there's passing strategies and avoidance strategies, and you know how do you how do you win when you're going head to head as they always are is drafting the, relevant at these low no speeds? it's it's not <laughs> it's not yeah i mean they're just we're in yeah they're going 20 miles an hour but they're small sure. biggest challenge though and this is one that does not show up a lot in self-driving in, in real self-driving cars mm-hmm. we're going freaking fast you know so so you know 20 miles an hour in a in a one-tenth car that's 200 miles an hour you know and so this is real-time robotics and I don't know how much you've spent with real-time robotics, but 20 milliseconds is 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 slow. And so our inner inner loops, you know, we, we could be running them at a, you know a thousand hertz. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so you do inference at 20 milliseconds on a Raspberry Pi three. That's depends. It, it, you know, so we obviously we lower the. So no, we're not doing inference at you know, 20 milliseconds on a Raspberry Pi three. But we can do you know we can do 100 milliseconds on a Raspberry Pi four. Right, right, and that's your sort of your AI loop. Then you might have a, a motor controller loop that's that's running faster. If you're running an IMU or something, you might be detecting the IMUs, which is again the inertial measurements, would be testing detecting something like drifting. So if you're, you're supposed to be going straight and you actually have some lateral, uh, you know, movement, that means that your 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 wheels or your tires have lost traction and you're, and you're skidding. So wh- the, how do we do real time? And the answer is, so you need, you know, at least, at, you know, I would say thirty frames per second you know, at least 30 frames a second. That's actually, real Real cars are not going, are not, you know, are not sampling that fast. And if you're going 30 frames a second, you may have to make some concessions. So first of all, our cameras are relatively low res. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're running at like 320. And, you know, we, our models are, are, are pretty simplified. We might have three or four layers, but no more than that. We're not running a lot of models simultaneously. So it's end-to-end neural network. So basically it's just pixels come in and commands to the steering go out. Mm-hmm. So we're not running, we're not running parallel networks, et cetera. But yeah, these are all great challenges. If you tell somebody, you know, keep it under $400 and win, 
-hmm. It requires a lot of creative thinking about that. And you can't just throw compute at it. You know, it's not it's not okay to show up with the kind of stuff you'll find in the trunk of a Waymo. That's cheating. (laughs) You know, you show up with your Jetson Nano or your Raspberry Pi 4, and then you use some creative algorithm or technique to win. And that's the fun. Yeah, that is so fun. I mean, Jetson Nano or even Raspberry Pi 4 is no joke these days, though. It's funny to me. It's just like, it's amazing like what we can do. Yeah, it's, it's you know, the they're, they're both like, I don't know, the Nano right now is like 60 bucks or something, the the two gigabyte one and the Jets and the, the Raspberry Pi 4 is about the same. So it's really great. And, and but what's really important is the software frameworks now support them. So TensorRT, TensorFlow-RT, you know, Cross, FastAI, they're all starting to think about edge edge, you know, uh, compute. And so you know, they, about- I just want to say they've put in so much effort and they're so friendly. Like, I feel like when I've asked questions, they've just been unbelievably helpful. So I don't know. I just, I feel like I need to just give them a it's thank you a- for ab- that. Absolutely. And, you know, and everyone's doing it. So NVIDIA's, you know, obviously you know, they didn't have to come out with a Jetson that cost 59 bucks, but they, they did, you know, Amazon's set up a, you know, a RoboMaker, which is their, you know, virtual environment for this. Microsoft is investing a huge amount into edge AI, you know, Intel, the Intel real I just I just told you about you know Raspberry Pi you know etc. All the Google stuff is is focused on edge AI as well. So the notion that the edge you know so so the, the cloud and you know the core is, is 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 one thing, but the edge is is completely different in that you have real world inputs, you know real time inputs, real time outputs, and they tend to be small, cheap, energy you know, power efficient, etc. And so you know you realize that that the internet has always been this way that is a combination of the edge and the core, and that you know, it, it shifts. Where's the where's the thinking done? Where's the intelligence? And it's got to be some balance. And you know, we got the cloud, we got the core down down right, but the edge is an opportunity to basically pre-process a lot of data before you get it because we can gather so much data. If we can pre-process it with deep learning in the edge, it actually makes the core smarter as well. Totally. So it's it's really exciting what's happening right now, both not only with deep learning but also computer vision. I'm a big fan of a um, or a project called OpenMV, which is basically um, it it looks just like one of these cameras. Actually, so we've been talking a lot about deep learning, but computer vision is equally exciting. This is an OpenMV, and it's basically again a fifty dollar board, but it's a camera, and it's got compute on board, and it's basically running OpenCV, and it runs it really well with the Python interface, a fantastic IDE. And, you know, you basically just stick this on anything. It's, it's got, you know, it, it, can, it can run a, a car just all by itself. And now you've got the stuff that was like a PhD 10 years ago of, you know, edge detection and, and you know, um, some, some simple deep learning networks, you know, object detection, all sorts of, you know, transforms, et cetera, all just built in already built into this thing. And, you know, any kid can can now use this to do sophisticated computer vision. So actually, cars that use nothing more than this have, you know, consistently scored in the top 10. Wow. And, you know, you could stick this, I mean, you can literally make a self-driving racing car for less than $100 with something like this. So cool. So, I mean, before I let you go, I'd love to ask you a couple of broader questions. And, you know, I think one that I think you watched the Peter Norvig episode, and I was really kind of curious to ask him this. And you're here too, as like someone who's kind of been watching machine learning for like, you know, longer than most. And I'm really curious what your perspective is, like having sort of seen like a long arc of this stuff. I guess everyone must ask these questions, so I feel a little shy asking them, but I'm really curious what you think, right? When do you think we'll see, like, for example, like autonomous cars, like working in our, our life at all times and kind of 
where do you think this goes? Like, do you feel like there's probably fundamental limitations to what we're doing with neural networks now? Or do you feel like, you know, just kind of scaling up what we have leads to singularity like outcomes? You know, everything I know about deep learning, I probably learned from listening to your podcast. I mean, because, you know, I'm I'm dabbling. I'm, you know, Peter Norvig's a, a, a legend, but, you know. But I'm, you were I'm, training neural nets like back in uh, grad school, no? Yeah, but they weren't. These were hot field nets. And, you know, we, we hadn't really figured out the whole notion of layers and convolution and all that kind of stuff. So they, they didn't, there was a real dead end. And it was very frustrating. So, you know, I look, I with drones, once we got one drone to fly, I was like, sky's going to be dark with these things. They're essentially free. You know, they're, they're, it's done. Let's just, you know, I mean, why do we you know, think of think of how great it would be to have, you know, total information awareness of our planet, you know, to be able to rather than waiting for the satellites to come by or for the clouds to clear or having, you know, cameras in every stoplight. What if we could just sort of, you know, have a camera anywhere, anytime to measure our planet so we could manage it better? So it seemed to me obvious that the missing middle, if you will, we had cameras on the ground and we had cameras in space. And the missing middle was the air, which is, you know, an opportunity to be anywhere, anytime, higher resolution. Just seemed like a, a good thing to instrument our, our, our planet. And yet here we are. There's nothing in the air. I can't believe it. It's like it's been like 15 years and we still don't have sky dark with these things. We don't have we really don't have any autonomous drones at all in operation, except for the military, like we had back then. So what what happened? Well, the problem wasn't technical. The problem was regulatory. It is the FAA will not allow drones to fly beyond visual line of sight. Won't allow them to fly um, without a one to one pilot. You know, pilot. You know, like with sticks, like you know, like an animal. Basically, the the FAA will not allow drones to be autonomous. It won't allow drones to be, you know, to us to break the one to one ratio, which we've achieved nothing in uh, in a sense. Imagine a robot that can only work teleoperated. I mean, what have you achieved? You still have one person, one one robot, and that's where we are. Drones are essentially have to be teleoperated, or at least have someone monitoring autonomous operations, which is even worse because now they're not doing anything. So that was disappointing. It was disappointing for a regulatory reason, and and I can understand it, and I'm. I work with the FAA pretty closely. I'm trying to resolve it. But, you know, the question about cars is also about, it's more about society and regulation than it is about the cars. Do, can cars be aut- autonomous today? Yes. Can they be autonomous everywhere perfectly? No. Should it be okay for cars to be deployed autonomously in some places where they can be highly reliable, but not everywhere? Absolutely. And companies like Voyage are doing that with retirement communities, closed courses, if, if you will. So I, I think the question is, so are drones in use today autonomously? Yes. Are, are they overhead right now? No. Am I disappointed there, there aren't more of them? Yes. But, you know, obviously they go where they're needed most. And I presume that self-driving cars, I think we're setting the wrong, the wrong standard. Should, you know, should we have, you know, self-driving Ubers, you know, in, you know, in, in all cities? Probably not. There's not a lot of advantage to it. You know, Waymo's doing a little bit in Arizona, but you know that's probably not a game changer. Where would self-driving cars be a game changer? I think actually retirement communities are a really good example. They're quite empowering and liberating um, for for people. And so I think you know if you if you sort of reset and say, as the technology gets better, will we identify you know really useful places where where just where they wants to be. And, you know, and, and focus less on the tech and more about the marketplaces and the demand, 
you know, it, it, will we find those places? And the answer, the answer is yes. And so I, I think that, you know, all the questions about like, you know, when is, when are self-driving cars come, they all kind of come from a technology place. And I think that's, the, I think we're, we're being Silicon Valley, you know, we're in our Silicon Valley bubble. We really need to understand the needs, the use cases, the, you know, the, 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 the places that, that would benefit most from them and think less about the tech and more about how it's going to be used. Interesting. Interesting perspective. Thanks. So there's sort of two, two questions that we always end with. And, and the second to last one is, you know, from your perspective, you know, especially from drones and, and robots, what's one underrated aspect of machine learning that you think people should pay more attention to? I think I'm, I mentioned I'm really into simulation and synthetic data. I know you had you, you had a couple episodes now on synthetic data creation, but I I do think this is the golden age of simulation. I work really closely with Microsoft, and if you've used Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020, which basically you know uses satellite and aerial data to recreate the entire planet at you know photorealistically you know with using photogrammetry to kind of create a 3d models of the planet but i mean like real time like with weather and everything like as it really is i think this is the golden age of simulation the golden age of rendering that and as a result, our opportunity to to use these powerful engines to train models better. You know, we talked about domain randomization. We talked about synthetic synthetic data, but I'm I'm most excited about 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 that because I feel like we've kind of hit some some limits in the ability of humans to train models, and you know, even CPT you know three is limited by the you know the as you as you've you've mentioned before is limited by the, the amount of data on the internet, which sounds like a lot, but is never enough, and so I think that we need to start generating. We need to think really hard about our synthetic data generation strategies so that we can, you know, break through the limits of real data and start training them on things that, that, that we can only imagine. Totally. Okay. And then final question is for you, and, and you've actually built a pretty sophisticated end-to-end -end ML system now. What's like the, the biggest challenge of getting that to work? Or what's the challenge of getting that to work that people might not expect when you just sort of lay out? what you're doing. So first of all, I should say, I didn't, I did not build this. This is the donkey car team. And there's a lot of people there who, you know, who, who get credit uh, for that. Ton Kramer is, was the originator um, of, of the current stack. So first of all, one thing you should know about, about end to end is that is end to end. All we have is one channel, right? You know, <laughs> pictures come in and controls go out. We, we're blessed to have things like TensorFlow that will do that. But, you know, once we start introducing other things like depth sensing and those other sensors we talk about, we're probably going to need to introduce um, multiple parallel networks, you know, running. Now, should the obstacle avoidance be also running on, a deep, on, a, on, on machine learning or should that be more sort of classical control theory? Like, you know, if then, if you will. You know, should, how do we combine, you know, classic robotics control theory with deep learning? You know, one's probabilistic, the other one's deterministic. How do we how do we merge them? And so I, I think there's some interesting work to do to start to introduce multiple inputs, into, right now we have one input, one output, but of course, you know, in, in robotics, it's, it's MIMO, multiple input, multiple output. And uh, I think, and you know, if you stick to the $400 limit to be, to be able to do multiple input, multiple output with deep learning, you know, in all of these, all of these channels is, is super interesting. I don't know whether we're there yet, but that's, that's, you know, that's, that's sort of, you asked, what, what have we learned? And we've learned that you can do one channel you know, one network pretty easily, and it works amazingly well, but it doesn't scale to multiple inputs. And if you really want to start like winning against competitive in competitive races with other cars and actually doing what a human would do in a race, we're going to need to bring in all the channels and sensors and data we can. And that means a different architecture. 
Although the part of that car that's gonna come down is the is the running neural networks, right? I mean, I feel like that's the thing that seems to be dropping the, the fastest. That well, that is good news. You know, the Raspberry Pi five or the or you know the Xavier you know Jetson can do that. Then yeah, maybe we can just apply our, our same technique and just say, say okay, let's add another network to tr- keep track of the other car, the other cars, add a third network to keep track of the sliding, the friction, how the car is actually mechanically moving on the track with the IMU, and then you know find some way to merge them. That would be super exciting. I don't you know to do the whole thing at 30, 50, 60 frames per second, under four hundred dollars. I don't think we're quite there yet. But you're, you're right, that's going to be the focus over the next couple of years. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. It's an honor to talk to you, and that was so much fun. This really was a pleasure. Doing these interviews are a lot of fun. And the thing that I really want from these interviews is more people get to listen to them. And the easy way to get more people to listen to them is to give us a review that other people can see. So if you enjoyed this and you want to help us out a little bit, I would absolutely love it if you gave us a review. Thanks. Thanks.